We come to the end of our series on Colossians. Today we're wrapping up the book. And as the book began, it begins with this massive big picture scope of God's cosmic plan of redemption. It mentions how God is working all things to reconcile them in the Son, the Son being sent the very fullness of, of divinity and human form to reconcile all of creation to himself, all things being made through him and for him. And then Paul brings himself into the scene, right? He says, and I get to be a minister, an apostle of that son who is working God's cosmic plan of redemption. He gets to declare the mystery, the unfolding of God's plan as it has been disclosed in the coming of Christ. And now as we get to the end of the book, where Paul mentions all these different people, including the Colossians themselves, as he goes through a list of folks who are partners, he makes it clear to us that as believers, we share in that cosmic plan as well. That we are participants in God's big plan of redemption and renewal flowing through the local church. Maybe you have done this, or maybe you know someone who has participated in an election campaign. We have the midterms coming up in November here, and maybe they just had a small little role, like sending you those annoying text messages, or going door to door and trying to convince you that their candidate should be elected. Now, I imagine if you were one of those people, and your candidate does get elected, you might feel like, wow, like you get to see on TV when that person's election is won, and, and it's announced, you feel like you played a, a role in something way bigger than just yourself. The small little bit that you played was a part of something bigger. And how much more that we as believers get to participate in something far bigger than a temporary election cycle, but to get to participate in God's cosmic plan of redemption, that the little roles that we play, the things that we do to serve the mission of the church, are participating in that grand scheme. And so as Paul closes out his letter, of course, as, as Shar read for us, this is Paul's farewell. He is saying goodbye. He is sending his greetings. He's also giving some final instructions. But what I want you to notice is that he does all that in a particular way. This isn't just a throwaway section. Like You might be wondering, why are we even having a sermon on this? I hope you'll see that this isn't a throwaway section. He is crafting his farewell and his final greeting in a particular way to emphasize something to the Colossians. And that is this, that they are partners with others in gospel ministry. So if you were to boil down the sermon into one sentence today, it would be this, that we as believers, the Colossians and by extension all believers, including us, we are partners with other believers in gospel ministry. And so what we'll do today is we kind of outline our, our message today. First, we'll look at uh, the case for that theme of partnership. We'll see that we are partners with others. Then we will look at what is the actual aim of that partnership. What's that partnership in? What is it for? And then thirdly, probably the bulk of our, our time, we'll actually sort out what that partnership looks like. What are some of the characteristics, the activities that characterize that partnership? So first of all, I want you to see the theme of partnership. As you look at uh, chapter 4, verses 7 through 18 with me, Look in verse 7, you see that he describes Tychicus. We'll go pretty quickly here, but he describes Tychicus as a beloved brother and a faithful minister. That's the same language Paul used to describe himself, a faithful minister and 
fellow slave or fellow servant of the Lord Jesus. He refers to Onesimus also as a faithful and beloved brother. Aristarchus in verse 10 is a fellow prisoner. Notice that language fellow again. Someone who's there along, a co-laborer, you will. Uh, Or we get uh, Mark is mentioned. We get Jesus, not that Jesus, but Jesus who is called Justice. And then he's described as a fellow worker for the kingdom of God. In verse 12, we have Epaphras, who is a servant of Christ Jesus. And he's struggling on their behalf through prayer. Uh, We see in verse 13, he continues that Epaphras has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis, so these three local regions and the churches there. He mentions Luke. He mentions Damas in verse 15. He also mentions these churches, like the brothers at Laodicea. He mentions Nympha, who is serving the church by offering her home to them, her house. The church in Laodicea, as we already mentioned, we have uh, have Archippus in verse 17, who is fulfilling some sort of ministry. And then finally, we have Paul. So we get like a full roster here. If you ever watch like a soccer game, I don't know how many of you are into soccer, but as you know I am, if you watch a soccer game at the beginning of the game, they will often put a graphic that shows the starting 11, the 11 players that start the game, and they normally lay them out like here are your defenders or your backs, your midfielders, and your, your attackers or your strikers. And it lays it all out, and it says the positions. It says their names. That's kind of what Paul is doing here. He's laying out what the roster is. He's showing us the team and the different roles that people are playing. Archippus, he's our, he's our wing back. You know, Mark, he's playing left striker. Okay, or if you're into football, we have Sunday night football coming up. I believe it's the Bengals and the Ravens. And oftentimes when the offense has their first play, it like has this little graphic of the different players who are like, uh, I don't know, Joe Bigley, the Ohio State University. And they go through all the different people in their, in their positions and their names, right? To acquaint you with who's the team on offense, who's the team on defense. That's sort of how you should view this passage. We're going through the roster of those who are partnering to spread and advance the gospel. But the question then is partnering towards what? I guess I just told you in the gospel. But let's look at that. What is the aim of that partnership? Okay? So secondly here, we see the aim of the partnership. And that aim we can see exemplified in verse 12, which is maturity and stability in Christ. Epaphras, particularly here, exemplifies this, where Paul says of him that he is one of you, he's part of their church, he's a servant of Christ Jesus, and he greets you, and this is how he describes him then. He describes Epaphras as always struggling, that's the same language that Paul used to describe his own apostleship, that he was struggling as he suffered for the sake of the, of the gospel. Epaphras is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers so that, and here's the aim, so that you may stand mature and full, literally. Full, like we've seen the word fullness used throughout the book. Or filled. But here it's interpreted to mean fully assured, full in the will of God. that The will of God, of, of God's plan of cosmic redemption. This is the same theme that the book began with. Okay, this is sort of how I'm making my case here. So I want you to see how this theme at the end, mentioning Epaphras as seeking to see them mature and, and, and having fullness in the will of God, fits exactly how Paul began the book in his ministry and other ministry there. So look with me at the beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 7. He also mentions themes of partnership for the sake of 
maturity and stability in Christ. In verse 7, he talks about how they learned about the grace of God in truth from Epaphras, the same guy. This is who they first heard the gospel from. In other words, people kind of see Epaphras as the church planter for the church in Colossae. And he is a beloved fellow servant. Same language, fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. So Epaphras is ministering on their behalf. And then we see in verse 23 that Paul describes himself as a minister of which I became a minister of this gospel, the hope of the gospel. I became a minister. And now let's read verses 24 to chapter 2, verse 2. We'll reread the section where Paul talks about his ministry. And I want you to see the overlapping theme so that the way Paul introduces the book fits with the way he closes it even subtly here. Verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings, same language as we saw, for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister, same language here, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. That is, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. To them, to the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ among you, even Gentiles, the hope of glory. Him, notice this, him, this Jesus, we proclaim, doing what? We warn everyone and we teach everyone with all wisdom, so that, this is our aim in all of it, that we may present everyone mature, in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love, notice this, to reach all the riches of the full assurance, same language, the fullness of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I say this in order that no one may delude you, etc. And so we see here that what we sometimes call the top and the tail of Bible study, looking at the beginning of the book and the end of the book, you'll notice, even as we read, we read a little bit of the context in chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, the section that Sam preached on last week, that's a prayer, right? Well, the book began with a prayer where Paul talks about how he's always praying for them and he's praying that the word, the gospel, would bear fruit among them. Well, then how does he close the book? He closes the book by calling them to pray as well, that the gospel would then bear fruit as they go and they seek to proclaim it to others and as Paul seeks to go proclaim it to more people. So just as the book began with a prayer of gospel fruit, it closes with a prayer of gospel fruit. That the whole book is surrounded with prayer. It's encapsulated by prayer that the gospel would bear fruit. And then when Paul details his ministry as well as other people's ministry, he does it as, as saying, I'm a minister seeking to see people, what? Mature and full in the gospel, full in the wisdom and knowledge of God, full in assurance of God's will, namely his plan of redemption. I want to see people 
full and stable in that and thus mature in Christ. And that's the same way he, he mentions how Epaphras is striving. is to He's a minister striving that people would be mature and full in the will of God. Fully assured, as the ESV says. And so the book begins and ends in the same way, praying that the gospel would produce maturity and full assurance. And in the middle of the book, the body is what? It's when he tackles the false teaching. And he says, hey, if I want people to be assured in the gospel, this is what you need to avoid, the false teaching over here. And this is the true source of maturity, that you've died and you've risen with Christ and you are now a new humanity in Christ. And so this is the gospel. When you talk about partnership in the gospel, according to this passage, this is what Paul has in view. It's promoting this gospel that we are partners in. It's assuring each other of this gospel. As Paul talks about the fullness, I want you to know that you have the fullness of salvation in Christ. As he talks about in chapter 2 when he says that you are full in Christ, he says that your, your sinful flesh has been cut off, it's been circumcised. That baptism shows that you've died to your old self, you've risen to a new self. That, that Christ has disarmed uh, demonic powers that would accuse you. That you have risen with Christ. You are now seated with Christ in heavenly places. Put your focus on that. Not on these earthly regulations, this legalistic mentality and approach to religion. But focus, set your mind on who you are in Christ. You're a new humanity in him. That's the gospel that we share in as we partner to see it advanced in our own local church and beyond. For all those who would trust in Christ. That is the gospel. And so Paul is saying this, as he gives them farewell, he emphasizes that we are partners with others in gospel ministry. I like to think of it this way. Um, i got to have a Lord of the Rings illustration every once in a while. Lord of the Rings, the first movie, The Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, they meet together, and you have Frodo, who if you're not familiar with the Lord of the Rings, I'm sorry, um, but I'll try to bring you up to speed. They have to get this magical ring into a volcano, essentially, okay? And that's going to defeat the bad guy, right? So Frodo, this little dude, he's, he's got a ring. He's got the ring, and he's got to get it into the volcano, Mordor. And he's just a little guy, and he's not, the, these uh, hobbits are not really good at fighting. And so there's some other characters that come along to form what they call the Fellowship of the Ring. I just love that use of the word fellowship, because that's actually what the word means. Sometimes we use the word fellowship to mean kind of like hanging out with each other. But the word fellowship is really this idea of partnership. They are coming together to partner. They have something in common. They have, we have the gospel in common. So Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli, there's that famous line that Gimli says, where Aragorn, says you, have my, Aragorn says, you have my sword. Gimli says, you have my bow. And Gimli goes, and you have my axe, right? Okay, they all come together to say, we're going to help Frodo get this ring in Mordor. They have a fellowship for the purpose of destroying the ring. And we have a greater fellowship, a fellowship in the gospel, partners to see the gospel spread. Now, why, I want us to ask this question, why would Paul be emphasizing this here? As he, as he says farewell, as he mentions the things he mentions, why is he doing this? What is he looking to get done by pointing out these features, reminding them of their partnership with others. I think on the one hand, it's simply to encourage them. That we can be encouraged by knowing that we're not alone in this. That there are other believers, um, even outside our own church. Like some of these people are from, are, are, would be members of the Church of Colossae. He says that they're of you, they're one of you. But a lot of these folks are ministers from without their church. And just to know that there are other believers doing the work with us, that we're not alone 
is meant to encourage us. But it also is meant to uh, stir us up to contribute in that partnership as well, I think. To contribute in our own ways. That each of us has a gift. As Paul says, the Spirit has distributed gifts and each of us has a unique gift, not for the sake of ourselves, but to use it for the sake of others. And so I think by reminding them of their partners, it reminds them of their own role in that partnership. And so the last move I want to make in this sermon, which is the the longest section here, but I want us to then look at what exactly this partnership looks like. Like, what are the activities then that would characterize this partnership according to our passage? Um, And so we're going to follow the order of the passage now. We're just going to kind of go verse by verse and note the different things here. I've actually come up with a list of at least 15 things I think this passage can show us of how um, this partnership is worked out. And this is not exhaustive, but at least 15 things that this passage shows us. Um, As you think about the structure of the passage, in verses 7 through 9, Paul is going to mention uh, those that he's sending to the Colossians to deliver his letter and report on his circumstances. Then in verses 10 through 14, He's going to mention those who are with him currently and how they greet the Colossians. First, he's going to mention the Jewish ones, those of the circumcision, he says. That's verses 10 through 11. And then he's presumably going to list the Gentiles that are with him, verses 12 through 14. Then in verses 15 through 17, Paul is going to give his instruction to his partners, the churches in Colossae and Laodicea. And then finally, in verse 18, he mentions himself and greets them himself. Okay, so we'll go, don't worry, these 15 are fast, they're very fast, but we'll go through 15 of these. The first one is this, the first one is just assumed, it's not any one place in the passage, but it's just assumed that you are in partnership with others, even those outside your own church. So the first way we practice partnership is actually by being in partnership with others, even believers and churches outside our own. You see this because they're greeting one another, they know each other, they have relationships outside of their church. And so this would be one of the ways we can practice this. This is is why, for example, right now we're kind of making the move, as you guys know, to try to eventually join some sort of larger uh, entity, a larger association, a convention, or a denomination, if you will, to try to be a part of something bigger, to have those partnerships. And we should have updates on that hopefully soon. Some of the ways that we currently do this as at our church is... um, We have our partnership with Sweet Communion, as you know. We have our joint services coming up with them, a predominantly African-American church on the north side of Milwaukee that we partner with. We have a Milwaukee Pastors Fellowship that we started over two years ago with area pastors that come together on a monthly basis with Sweet Communion, but others, to just encourage one another. Um, We have local ministry partners, uh, whether that's CareNet or the Milwaukee Rescue Mission, et cetera, that we we like to highlight and, and, and stay in connection with as well as our missionaries, of course. And then Dan and I, we will regularly get together with other pastors to try to foster those relationships and stay connected. And we make it a habit in our Sunday mornings, as you'll hopefully have noticed, to be regularly praying for other local churches and Christian ministries in our city. That's part of our rotation. Secondly, a way that we, are, uh, we participate in this partnership is by uh, simply reporting information, encouraging each other by telling each other what is going on in our ministries. Look at verses 7 through 9 with me. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities, that is Paul's activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, 
that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So they're going to partner by simply reporting what's going on with Paul and encouraging them in that way. One of the ways that we do this is we try to have monthly highlights um, of either one of our missionaries. Every, every month we have someone give an announcement about some of the things going on with one of our missionaries or we highlight one of our local ministry partners in the city um, just to keep everyone updated so that one, on the one hand, that we can be encouraged by what others are doing. There are others like Exploit No More fighting uh, sex trafficking in the city or uh, some of these other ministries like the Language Center who are helping refugees learn English and sharing the gospel with them. Um, to be encouraged that we have these fellow laborers, but also that we can be praying for them and considering ways that we might help them in that task so that we might support them or even join in their efforts. Um, so we'll do, for example, uh, even just this last week, I did a video call with Lafto Church in Ethiopia. Isn't that awesome? We have the technology that Pastor Eo, who's a part of Lafto Church that we support, that about once every two months or so, he and I connect over Zoom and just update each other, share prayer requests and pray together. It's encouraging. Thirdly, we see that one of the ways we partner is through hospitality, showing hospitality to gospel laborers as a way of supporting their ministry. Read verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. Welcome Mark. Welcome Mark, who is a gospel laborer. If he comes to you, Show him hospitality. Support gospel laborers by showing hospitality to them. An example of this would be like last year when our missionaries, uh, Jeff and Meredith Barrett, came and spent a year in the States. What, what did some of you guys do? You guys went and you uh, filled their house and their, their uh, cabinets, their pantry, with food and other things that they needed so that when they arrived, they were ready to go. It was just one less thing for them to worry about. It's a way of saying, hey, you are laboring for the gospel. What can we do to show you hospitality and support you? Fourthly, uh, implied here, I think a fourth way we demonstrate partnership is through reconciliation, is through transcending grievances. And so you'll notice that he mentions Mark, as we just talked about. Now, if you know anything about Mark, you know that Paul... Mark and Barnabas had a little bit of a kerfuffle, okay? In the book of Acts, in Acts 15, um, we learn that Mark, on Paul's first missionary journey with Barnabas, they brought Mark along, who was his nephew, and at one point, Mark bails on them. We're not told why Mark bails, but Mark bails. And so when they're getting ready for their second missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas have a strong disagreement about whether they should bring Mark along. Paul is opposed to it, Barnabas his uncle wants to bring him along. And so they split up, and that's why Paul ends up going with Silas on his second missionary journey. Well, at this point, whatever disagreement was, whether that was heated or not, we don't know all the details, but whatever it was, Mark is now with Paul, and he's serving alongside Paul. They have transcended those grievances for the sake of ministry. Here, Mark is with him, and they are reconciled ministry partners. And even when we get to Paul's last letter that he ever wrote, 2 Timothy at the very end, chapter 4, he says this to Timothy. He says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. That by the end of his life, Paul can consider Mark very useful to him. 
And so one of the ways we partner is by reconciling in the gospel for the sake of the gospel. And so maybe there is a fellow believer here or even someone outside of the church, uh, our church that is, that you need to reconcile with as a co-laborer in the gospel. Fifthly, we see that we partner by comforting others in the midst of their difficulties, in suffering. Look at verse 11. And Jesus, who is called Justice, he mentions him as greeting as well, these are the only men of the circumcision, that is the Jewish ones, among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. They're with Paul. In other words, what does he mean by comfort? They're with Paul in his imprisonment. And they are, by being there, we don't know if they're doing anything extra or maybe it's just their presence, but in whatever way, they are being a comfort to Paul in those circumstances. And so, so too we, we can comfort others in difficulty as we are all laboring on for the sake of the gospel. It makes me think of times in our church where maybe someone is going through something difficult, something arises. I think of recently with the, with the Dinos and, and, and Whidbey's uh, medical issues that have risen up. And the church get, gathering around them to care for them, provide meals, clean the house. And the Dinos welcoming that and receiving that, letting us care for them. Or others, maybe you're moving and it's the church getting around to help you with the move. Or you just had a baby, different ways that we provide meals for each other and other things to care for each other. This is rooted in like, hey, we are a team. We are here together to care for you. As Paul says, we're going to not only rejoice with others when they rejoice, but we're going to weep with others when they weep. And as he says in 1 Corinthians 12, if one member of the body suffers, that's all of us suffering with them, bearing that burden together. Sixthly, we partner by transcending ethnic differences. We have ethnic or racial unity. This one is more implied as well. But even the fact that Paul can say, hey, there are these men of the circumcision, Jewish, and then there are these men, we'll see in verses 12 through 14, that would have been Gentile. He mentions them together as co-laborers. And so as we know, even from that time period, that in the first century, there would have been deep cultural divisions. And today we can still face deep cultural and ethnic divisions. And yet we unify together as one for the sake of partnering in the gospel. Seven, we can pray. We can partner by praying. Look at verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. And I love the way that Paul describes this. Epaphras is always struggling on your behalf. Now, now you hear struggling on your behalf. If you didn't know it was coming, and maybe you don't know what's coming, what would you think he might say? Struggling. It sounds like there's so much exertion. It's like a physical activity maybe. Maybe he's, you know, he's facing persecution. He's having to run here and there. What does he say? Struggling in his prayers. That one of the ways that we labor for the sake of the gospel is by praying. Praying for people's maturity and their stability, their assurance in the will of God. But I want you to consider that one of the primary ways that we partner in gospel ministry is by praying for it. By praying for God to raise up laborers for the harvest. By praying for people already involved in ministry, that their ministry would be fruitful. That God would work through his ministers in his church. You know, we sometimes, I imagine, we tend to think that the people who are doing the most for the church are probably the people who are up front. The people who have public roles. 
But the people who are likely doing the most for the church, so to say, it just may be that random person that no one really notices a whole lot, but is just devoted to prayer and is behind the scenes constantly praying for the church. Eight, we partner in the gospel by seeking to spread the gospel. Verse 13, Paul continues to describe Epaphras by saying, I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Now, he doesn't say how Epaphras has worked hard for them here, but we do know from earlier in the book that Epaphras was the person who brought the gospel to Colossae. So it seems that one of the ways, it seems like likely what Paul has in view here is that Epaphras planted the church, he witnessed, he spread the gospel in that area, and maybe he's even been one of the pastors of the church. We don't know that for sure, but he had an instrumental role in the Colossian church. And the fact that he mentions Laodicea and Hierapolis indicates that he also was doing ministry in those contexts as well. And so we know from Epaphras that he was involved in church planting. He was involved as an evangelist, we might say, in spreading the gospel. And so to us, one of the ways that we partner in the gospel is through multiplying. Multiplication is a key part of our mission. It's something that we should be pursuing, sending out missionaries, planting further churches. And so we pray that in years to come, God would continue to raise up missionaries like the Barretts, but hopefully others from our church to be sent out by our church. We pray that in years to come that we would even have opportunity to plant further churches in the Milwaukee area. Ninthly, the way we partner is by using our resources for the sake of the gospel, what we might call patronage, using your resources for the sake of the gospel. Verse 14 and 15, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as Damas, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. You notice this, this lady, Nympha, she houses the church, literally. She, the church meets in her house. She uses what she has, a house that it may be that she's wealthier because she has a house that's big enough to actually house this, this many people, but she is using what she has, what God has given her for the sake of the gospel. It makes me think of the Stibbies who regularly open up their homes so that we can meet in their home for different church events like the upcoming family meal. Using what God has given you for the sake of the church. Maybe it's using your house quite literally or maybe it's using your skills or, or if you are someone who is more wealthy, it's using your financial resources for uh, eternal purposes. There's a website in a ministry called Gospel Patrons and Dan's actually going to talk more about this in an upcoming sermon. But this ministry called Gospel Patrons, it's all about highlighting folks who are maybe businessmen um, or businessmen and women who are, who are wealthier and they've, they've just happened through their, they've been quite successful, they've happened to come along a lot of money. And one of the ways they support the mission is by using those financial resources to support ministry that otherwise maybe couldn't even happen. So there's this man, for example, named Ronald Wilcox, who is a successful businessman in London, and he supported a pastor named Dick Lucas. I don't know if you've heard of Dick Lucas, uh, but he's a well-known minister in London, and he, Dick Lucas, started Proclamation Trust. He would host in London on Tuesdays during the business uh, lunch hour, he would host something like a chapel. And this man, Ronald Wilcox, came and supported him financially, saw what he was doing, but eventually he gave him, he wrote him like a massive check 
to start what is what became Proclamation Trust, which is a ministry geared towards training pastors and expository preaching. And that ministry sparked a movement of renewed expository preaching that, that launched ministries today on a stateside like Charles Simeon Trust and uh, Word Partners, ministries that we benefit from here that Dan and I go to. And, and, and like text group in many ways is a local church level of that. And so this man, Ronald Wilcox, by using his money for something like that, had a massive impact. Or by show of hands, how many of you guys know uh, a person who is named Mo Bergeron. Anyone know Mo? How many of you have, though, heard of John Piper? Okay? You, you may not know who John Piper was if it hadn't been for Mo. So Mo is a friend of mine. Uh, he's an older man. He's a bivocational pastor. He serves as a pastor on the side. But he, uh, as I said, he was older, and so when he was kind of coming of age, he was coming of age during a lot of when the internet was developing and things like that. And so he's actually the guy who he had heard John Piper's sermons, I think probably on cassettes or something like that, and said, I want to build him a website and get his sermons up on the internet. And came to John Piper and offered to do that, and he put his sermons up on the website, and that's really what escalated John Piper's ministry and people actually knowing his sermons. So if, you're, if you ever go on Desiring God and listen to a John Piper sermon, you have Mo to thank for that. But he's just behind the scenes, using his skills for the sake of gospel advancement. The other thing I want you to notice as well, tenthly, is that this partnership is characterized not simply by men as partners, but women as partners. Nympha is a female name. It's a lady here. And we, we shouldn't, that may not seem like a very big deal to us in our culture, but the, no, remember how countercultural that would be to say, hey, she's a laborer in the gospel. It makes me think of Philippians 4, when Paul is addressing Iodia uh, and Syntyche. He calls them his co-laborers in the gospel. They're co-laborers with the apostle Paul. And so women as well are partners in the work. Tenthly, one of the ways we partner is by promoting the word in our churches. Look at verse 16. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. See to it, church, this is a command, church, see to it that scripture is read. Remember, they wouldn't have had their own individual copies of scripture, so this is how they get their intake of scripture. See to it, church, that you are focused on scripture, that it is being read in your congregations, that one of the most valuable ways we partner in the gospel is by doing our part to keep it central in our church and its ministries. Twelfth, we partner in the gospel by encouraging ministers in their labors. Look at verse 17. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. Now notice, the text doesn't say, hey, Archippus, fulfill the ministry that you receive from the Lord. What does it say? It says, and say to Archippus. The command is actually for the church to say this to Archippus. In other words, we don't know exactly who Archippus is. We don't really know much about why he needed to be told to fulfill his ministry. Maybe he was struggling in it, or maybe uh, he was doing a fine job, but Paul just wanted them to keep encouraging him. Probably Archippus was some sort of, had some sort of public role in ministry, though, because he can assume that the church all knows what this ministry is that he's meant to fulfill. 
But the point is that they're actually commanded to encourage him to fulfill his ministry. Why? Because ministry can be difficult. And, and so he, incur- he tells them to offer him encouragement. And so have you, have you ever considered that? That one of the ways that you can actually partner in gospel ministry is by encouraging those who are doing it. You get to partner with them in their labors by encouraging them to keep on going. Thirteen, we remember suffering Christians. Verse 18, Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Remember my chains. Remember my imprisonment, in other words. That we remember those believers who are facing persecution. That we're going to be, one, encouraged by their example, I think, by remembering them, by keeping them in mind, but also remembering them to pray for them, to partner with them in prayer. And so that's one of the things that we like to do here is, as one of our things that we rotate on as, as we pray as a church is to pray regularly for the persecuted church. Fourteen, though, I think is implied here is that Paul is modeling a willingness to suffer. That one of the ways that we partner in the gospel is by being willing to suffer for it ourselves. And then lastly, 15, I would just say there's a whole lot here that's not expressly stated. So we can fill in the blanks that there are so many other ways not expressly stated here that we can, t- that we can also partner. That as Paul tells uh, Archippus to fulfill your ministry, each one of us is also given a ministry. As I said, each one of us is also given gifts to use for the sake of the mission. And so to each of us, it's as if Paul is saying, fulfill your ministry. Whether that's serving on a Sunday morning, maybe to set up and to tear down. Or maybe it's providing rides to people in order for them to get here. Or it's opening up your home to be used for a small group. Or you serve on the women's ministry team to organize events. Or maybe you serve as a deacon. Whatever it is, we are all partners. As as we like to talk about in our philosophy of ministry, we want to hold up what's called every member ministry. Ministry is not something that is just for the select few. It's not something that just the pastors do. Like we pay the pastors to do the ministers. They're the ministers. No. Pastors serve a unique role in equipping everybody to be ministers. Every single one of us is called to play our part. And as Paul says in Ephesians 4, when each part of the body is working properly, it's able to build itself up in love. Each part of the body multiplying ministers more hands making light work. And so as we've seen here, we've seen that Paul is emphasizing that we are partners. We have a shared aim in this partnership of seeing people matured in the gospel. And we saw a, a, many examples of the ways that we can carry out this partnership. That we are partners with others for the sake of the gospel. This is meant to, on the one hand, encourage us as we see that we, and we reflect on the fact that we have other people who are in partnership with us but also to be stirred on to contribute in our own way. And we should remember, of course, as the book of Colossians has done over and over for us, that all of this is ultimately because of what Christ has done. Uh, even as Liz was mentioning in, our, in, in her introduction uh, to the announcements, that we are not here today because somehow we muster ourselves into this partnership with God, that somehow we've negotiated a deal and he's accepted, on, accepted us on as associates or something like that. But he has simply invited us. He is the one who has empowered us. When Christ is, is, is ascends into heaven 
and he pours out his gifts. He pours out his spirit who empowers his saints to do the ministry. He is the only reason that we can carry out our partnership because he's empowering us to do so. He's given us gifts to do so. And it's only because of him that we've actually been made a part of this partnership to begin with. He is the one who has caused us to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. If you want to use the sports analogy again, the only reason that we are on the team is because God, through Christ, has drafted us. He has made us a part of the team. He has selected us. And as Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 1, it's not because there was anything, anything grand in us. What does he say in 1 Corinthians 1? He said, not, not many of you are anything special, but God chose what is weak in the world to shame the so-called wise. He chose what is foolish. It's God's grace that has invited us and has made us partners with him in his work of redemption and renewal. And it's Christ by the Spirit who empowers us towards that end. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, one of the things I want us to, the, the, the symbolism of the Lord's Supper is manifold. And one of the things I want us to focus on this morning is that we call it not just a supper, but it's the Lord's Supper. Christ instituted it, and Christ is the host of the meal. As he, as he says in the parable, go and invite people. We've been, in other words, the Lord's Supper is not something that we barge into. I'll have a seat for so-and-so, you know, like at a restaurant. We make the reservations. But it's a meal that we've simply been invited to, that we're undeserving participants in this meal. We have been made partners in gospel ministry, and it's because Christ is the host who invites us to receive salvation. That the, the Lord's Supper is a picture of that invitation, that salvation is by grace. It's something that we are invited to. It's not something that we earn a right to, but Christ invites us by his grace based on his death for us as it's depicted therein in the elements. And so because the Lord's Supper is a picture of salvation, we do believe that it's specifically for believers, for those who have place their faith in Christ and are seeking to follow him. And so if you're here today and you are not a believer in Christ, we're so glad that you are with us this morning, um, that you're present with us, but we would ask that you would refrain from coming forward to receive the elements at this time. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that we're to partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy way, as a way that is in keeping with its meaning, lest we were to eat and drink judgment on ourselves. And so this doesn't mean that we are sinless, doesn't mean that you can only partake of the Lord's Supper if you don't have any sin. Because why? The Lord's Supper assumes that we are sinful. That's the whole point, is that we're in constant need of God's grace. But it does mean that we are looking to Christ, we're trusting in him, and we are striving to live repentantly, albeit imperfectly. And so if that's you, we invite you to come forward this morning. What we do is we use the inner aisles. You'll grab the elements, you'll go back to your seat and be seated, and then we sing the song, the closing song as we do that. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And church, as often as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes.